I'm going to read the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 3 to us tonight because I think they are seven of the most fabulous verses of all for us to understand and then we're going to see then where it all comes from I hope anyway, that's, that's the plan for this reason I, Paul the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written, briefly written already by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power now if we were to go back to verse 6 Paul mentions that this is a mystery you want know, a mystery in the scriptures isn't something that no one knows a mystery is something that has been withheld from the Old Testament saints and revealed to the New Testament saints and this is the mystery that Paul has received revelation about it's verse 6 that the Gentiles, that's you and I should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel and that's where I think it's the most special passage of scripture that we could ever read it tells us that we are welcomed at God's table mm. we are welcomed at God's everlasting table now so far in our little skim through some of the prophecies of the scriptures we've looked at such books as Daniel and Ezekiel and Hosea and you would expect us to to go to places like that because that's where uh, some great gems have been uh, revealed to us and we've um, well I've enjoyed myself looking at the the prophecies from those three amazing books we've also gleaned some prophetic insight from the Psalms of course and in the life of Abraham in Genesis so we've looked at quite a large scope of prophecies from Hosea, uh, which is right at the end of the Bible, and Abraham in Genesis, which is right at the beginning of the Bible, and of course Psalms, which is right in the middle of the Bible. So we've sort of we haven't sort of gone to one little slot and got all our stuff from there. You know, God has told us all this throughout the whole of the Old Testament period. It's absolutely incredible. No wonder um, I want us to bring this whole supernatural prophetic jaunt to a close uh, very very shortly 
what I want us to do tonight is to look at what God has said to Zachariah. You know, I think we could, as I said a, a couple of weeks ago, we could go on and on and on and on and on and on in this subject of prophecy. Uh, I've said that the Bible is one-third prophetic, so it would take an whole lifetime of study. And of course, some Bible teachers do devote their whole lives to the study of the, the, the prophecies in the scriptures but um, we got other things to do as well and I'd like us to get back into Romans within the next couple of weeks uh, so we'll finish uh, our studies in Zechariah perhaps a week after next Zechariah Zechariah you know as we shall see he makes quite a number of announcements concerning the two major events of history now what are the two major events of history? Well, the first major event of history was the first coming of Christ. As one man has said, it's not the greatest day in human history. It wasn't the day that we walked on the moon. It was the day that God walked on the earth. You know, and that's, uh, that's probably the greatest day so far when Christ was born and when he walked the earth and of course when he went to the cross. The second greatest event of history is yet to come and that is the second coming of Christ. The next time that God will actually walk upon the earth. Now we just um, uh, this week just entered into the season of Lent and therefore Easter is rapidly hurtling towards us and of course Zachariah, as I've said, has so much to say about the first coming of Christ. So much to say about the first, the first coming of Christ. But he also, of course, as we see on the board, he also has a message for us concerning the second coming of Christ. You know, and um, yes, he may have written his book some 500 years before Bethlehem's miraculous event. But he also vividly portrays some of the things that will accompany the Lord's glorious return to planet Earth. You know, and um, I would think that some of the events that will take place then will be quite surprising. You know, and quite exciting. But what about his first coming? What about his first coming? Right, suppose that when we think about the first coming of Christ, our minds would automatically go to two events that uh, uh, occurred during Passion Week that are pre-recorded for us in Zechariah. Isn't that amazing? Two events that happened in Jerusalem pre-recorded 500 years before that happened. When here we are. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, you a king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a coat, the foal of a donkey. Now, of course, we could sort of immediately think that that's a report. We could think that someone um, in the Kidron Valley has shouted out to all the people of Jerusalem that the king is coming. Jesus is descending the Mount of Olives. 
And he's traversing the valley of Kidron. And he's going up to the mountains of Jerusalem. But you see, that's not a report. That's a prophecy. Those words come from Zechariah. Those words come from a prophet who was dead and gone when all this took place. You know, it's the account, of course, um, of the events that surrounded Palm Sunday. You want um, this amazing carnival type of procession that stretches all the way from the slopes of Mount Olives to the Golden Gate of Jerusalem. We have the entry of the great king. You know, we know the story, don't we, that when our Christ and his disciples were near to a little town called Bethphage, and Jesus commanded his disciples to go into the village, and uh, there they would find a donkey tethered to a post. Unloose him and bring him to me. You wonder, this is a report. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna! Son of to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's a report. That's a report. That's what happened on the day. That was someone in the Kidron Valley shouting out, Here comes the king. He's on a donkey. You and there are palm branches everywhere, and there's clothes strewn across across the land. And here we are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. That's a report. You know, it's quite obvious when you read the report and you read the prophecy that these people knew exactly what was going on. You know, and if you notice in that uh, report of Matthew, another quote is used from the Old Testament. A quote that's found in Psalm 118. And it accompanies the quote that they use from Zechariah chapter 9. And it's this one. No, it's not. It's this one. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. That's one of the things we could look at. That's one of the things that comes to mind when we think about what happened in the life of Christ as recorded or as predicted in Zechariah. But we could also refer to another uh, event that happened just a, a few days later. Because a few days later from this amazing moment, a man by the name of Judas betrayed Jesus for a measly 30 pieces of silver. But what is interesting about Judas is that he was racked with so much heart-burning remorse that he went back to the chief priests and the Jews to offer back the money that they had given him or they had paid him. Yeah. You know, and of course they wouldn't uh, 
accepted because it was dirty money. This wouldn't be fit. This wouldn't be fit to lay in the coffers of the temple. This was blood money. This was dirty money. You know, and so because they wouldn't accept it, we know the story so well. He threw the coins onto the floor of the temple. Matthew chapter 27 says, Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hung himself. Which of course is a, is, is a report. But we again have a prediction. A 500 year old prediction. And we find it in Zechariah chapter 11 and verses 12 and 13. And this is what it says. Then he said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely sum they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. And of course we know that even then the chief priests couldn't pick up the money and they bought the potter's field. And the first grave uh, that was dug there was Judas's. Who can argue then? Who can argue that these events in the last week of Christ's earthly life were foretold by Zechariah some 500 or so years before? Two events within the life of Christ. But I'd like to concentrate uh, on something else that we find in this amazing book of Zechariah something else that relates specifically to the first coming of Christ you know and um, I have as you know a favourite title for Jesus now all the titles are my favourite but it's Thursday night and we are talking about the branch the branch that's uh, oh what happened to that then get back here oh Oh, that's right. That's all right. Well, not good. <laughs> I found that. The branch. Now, there are quite a number of references to the branch. It's a funny word for Jesus, isn't it? It's a funny sort of title. You know, the, the vine, the door, the light, uh, and, and the way, the truth. And, you know, we, we're all familiar with those type of titles. But there's one title in the Old Testament that stands out for me anyway. And it's the branch. Jesus is called the branch. No, and um, if you study the Old Testament, you'll find that there are quite a number of references to the branch. And each one brings out a definite trait of our Lord. You see, Isaiah calls him the branch of Jehovah. Um, which will sprout from the root of Jesse. So we have Christ's deity. He is the branch of God. And he is the son of Jesse. So he has his, there's his humanity. You know, and we will build up a lovely little picture of Christ when we go through 
the title of the branch. So we have Christ's deity and his humanity. Jeremiah calls him the righteous branch who is set to reign as king. So we have God, we have king, and then um, Zechariah or Zachariah calls him my servant, the branch. And again in chapter 6, I think, it's called, he's called the man whose name is branch. Let's look at them three, four. The branch of Jehovah, he's God. The righteous branch who is set to reign as king, he's king. The servant, the branch, he's a servant. And the man whose name is branch. So he's God, he's a king, he's a servant. And he's a man. Now we know to me that um, you're the four. Uh, there are the four designate designations of Jesus, and we know that Matthew deals with Christ's royalty, whereas he was born King of the Jews. Mark deals with Christ's servanthood. You know, in Mark, he doesn't even have a genealogy because he is a non-entity. He is a servant and he's become to, to serve people. In Luke, of course, we know that he's a man because he was born of the Virgin. And you know, when Luke portrays him as the man, and of course, John portrays him as God. So when you look at the Gospels and you look at these four uh, designations of Christ as the branch, you can see the whole definition, really, of Christ as outlined by the Gospels themselves. He is the King. Hail the King of the Jews. He is the servant. He is the servant King. We sing it. Christine sings it along with Alison. The servant King. He is the man. He is the man Christ Jesus. The God who became flesh and dwelt among us and of course in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and so we have this amazing perfect 3D image of Christ you know and if we go to Zechariah chapter 6 and this is where I want you to turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 6 because I'm going to read just a few verses from verse 12 and this is what it says then speak to him saying thus saith the Lord of hosts behold the man whose name is the branch from his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord yes he shall build the temple of the Lord he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. And the counsel of peace shall be between them both. Now of course our minds perhaps would uh, go to John chapter 2. And in John chapter 2 if you remember Jesus we see Jesus cleansing the temple turning over the, the tables of the money changers and chasing out the other doves and things and uh, he does this uh, and of course upsets an awful lot of people 
people don't like it when you sort of uh, you go off on a tangent to what people are used to and here he is you know, they came up. They come up to him. This hierarchy of people. They come up to him and they ask him, "On what authority do you do these things?" You see, not anybody, not just anybody, can go up and do such a radical thing as cleanse the temple. In fact, we have just gone through the book of Daniel, or some of the things in Daniel, and you will know that the cleansing of the temple is the sole domain of the Messiah himself. He is going to come, says Daniel, and cleanse the temple. And therefore these people are a bit confused. Because here is a man who is cleansing the temple. And so they say, well, who are you? And what authority have you got to come and do this? Don't you know that this is the sole authority of the Messiah? And he is, you are not him? And that was the, uh, the, th- the thought upon which they asked the question. Well, what authority do you do this? You know, and of course, if he was to go on in the, in the conversation, Jesus says something really strange. He says, destroy this temple... And I will rebuild it in three days. And of course we know, as we've studied God's word, especially the book of John, that what he said then had nothing whatsoever to do with the physical buildings of Herod's temple. Because he spoke of his own body. Which of course we know was the temple of God himself. And immediately we can see a link between Zechariah 6 and Jesus and see a link between Zechariah 6 and John chapter 2 and in fact Paul sort of picks up on something as well that has been said here and in in Ephesians chapter 2 he says this now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom also the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom also you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit now what did they say in Zechariah he will build the temple he will build the temple I don't think Jesus was a bricklayer or anything like that right so we're not talking about Herod's temple we're talking about something totally different and Ephesians chapter 2 would tell us first of all it tells us the raw materials that are going to be used and that is both Jew and Gentile You know, we are no longer strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints. And we are being built into this holy habitation of God. We are being built into his holy temple. He is building the temple. So the temple is Christ's own body. And what is Christ's own body? Well, it's nothing short of the church. And here we are. Here we are in 2020, we are part of the temple of God. Why? Because God is building his temple. You know, he tells Peter, doesn't he? I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So here we are, we are part of the fulfillment 
of Zechariah chapter 6. That Christ is building His temple. He will build it. And here we are. A part of that temple. You know, this is what he was referring to in John chapter 2. And I would suggest that this is what was being referred to in Zechariah chapter 6. You see, you and I, we're not a, a part of some random group of, in, of individual believers scattered all over the world. We're not isolated as we seek to worship God and serve Him in Astrid in the Ronda. No, we are part of a vast edifice being built throughout the ages to provide a permanent dwelling place for our God to dwell in. That's how privileged we are. That's how special we are. We are His habitation. You know, in the moment that we were saved, He came and indwelt us. The Spirit baptized us into the body of Christ and made us to drink of one Spirit. It's all to do with this union that we have with God, which has been, in fact, prophesied since Zechariah. So we are no longer, or we are not an isolated group of people. We are part of the permanent dwelling place of God. You know, Christ is, this, is the cornerstone, it says. The prophets and the apostles. In other words, the word of God is the foundation stone. And what are we? We are the living stones. That are being built up into this holy habitation. In fact, Peter says that you also, as living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that amazing? Now there's something very significant in these verses from Zechariah chapter 6 concerning the ministry of Christ now already we've talked about the temple and Christ's building of it and of course it places him as the priest Jesus is our high priest that's what it's, that's what it's implying you know and we see it it's written so he shall be a priest, says Zachariah. So he shall be a priest. Now, we know, because we are Bible students, that, well, at least I hope we know, this cannot be. This shouldn't be. Because when we read the Old Testament, we see that priests hail from the tribe of Levi. Whereas Christ is born to the tribe of Judah. And therefore it is impossible for Christ to be a priest. It goes against everything that God holds dear. But more than that. Listen to how that verse ends. So he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. He shall be a priest on his throne. Which suggests to me that Jesus is not only going to be the priest but he's going to be the priest king. Now again we know that this is an impossibility for both ministries to be found in one person. 
because we know that royalty comes through Judah and priesthood comes through Levi. So how can Christ be priest and king when people like King Saul, if you remember, he tried to do it. He was the king and he thought he'd sacrifice a couple of sheep along the way and God rejected him for it because that doesn't work for God. Saul was from Judah but the priesthood is from Levi. It doesn't work Saul and that's your last thing that you'll do as king for me. You know, the anger of the Lord burned heavy against Saul for doing what we see Christ doing here. So how on earth can Jesus, who has to follow the blueprint of the Old Testament and follow God's plans perfectly, how can he be king and priest at the same time when one person who did it was rejected? You want know the answer? The answer is found in Psalm 110. And it's a thrilling answer for us. Because this is what it says in Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek. Who on earth is Melchizedek? You know, I'm just going to fill you in a little about this guy called Melchizedek. He's the one, if you remember, who Abram met in Genesis chapter 14. Mem Abraham had just been on a, a sort of um, a war, a fighting tour. And he was coming back with all his spoils. And he met Melchizedek who gave him bread and wine. And um, Abraham then bowed before Melchizedek and offered him a tithe of all that he had. Now, Melchizedek. Let's look at this person called Melchizedek. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heavens and the earth. And blessed be the God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Melchizedek, he's a strange guy. He's a very strange fella. Now I want you to notice two things as we think about him. The first is that this happened before the founding of Israel. In other words, Israel did not exist at this point. Abraham was childless at this point and not the head of a great nation. So that means that this happened before the Levitical priesthood was brought into being. And yet Melchizedek is called the priest of God Most High. Therefore this priesthood supersedes the priesthood of Levi. Now, why is that important? Why am I getting all excited out up here? That Melchizedek's priesthood supersedes Levi's priesthood. But let me ask you a question. What has Levi's priesthood got to do with me? And the answer 
is nothing whatsoever. Levi's priesthood, the priesthood of the Jews, has got nothing whatsoever to do with me. It is specifically for the Jews. It was designed for the Jews. It was executed by the Jews for the Jews. And I, along with you, are not welcomed at all at the altar of the Jews. And therefore, if Christ's priesthood were of the Levitical type, then I'm afraid that salvation could never ever be ours. That's where I'm getting excited of you. Salvation could never be ours if Jesus was a Levitical priest. Now I read in Ephesians 3 at the beginning of our time tonight simply because this is the mystery that Paul was talking about. Remember what he said? The Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. You see, yes, we would say that the uh, salvation is to the Jews first, but salvation is also to the Gentiles. And it's Melchizedek stands at this point in time to assure us that we are welcomed at the throne of grace simply because Christ is a high priest, not Levitical, which means he is a high priest only for the Jews, but he is a high priest after the order of the universal Melchizedek priesthood. Now, how do we know from our passage in Zechariah that Christ is such a priest? Well, the second thing to notice in that uh, Melchizedek um, priesthood is that he is also called the king. He's called the king of righteousness. Now we know, don't we, that um, Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. But did you notice in the reading he's called the king of Salem, which is peace. So he's the king of peace. So here is a man who is the king of righteousness and he's also the king of peace now I am you are not on me to tell you who that is who is the king of righteousness and who is the king of peace at the same time and of course it's Jesus he is our righteousness and uh, Micah says he is and of course so does Ephesians that he is also our peace so that's Jesus for us He's all those things to us. You want Christ is following the pattern of Melchizedek as the priest king. And therefore, his ministry cannot be confined to the Jews alone. Because he wouldn't have been able to do that if, he, if it were for the Jews alone. I go again. Levi priesthood, Judah royalty. So this supersedes all that. And Jesus is standing before Israel ever came into being. And he is the priest of the high God, most high God for everyone. 
You know, not even Abraham was a Jew at this point. So we've gone way back past this little 1500 year spell of Israel and its priesthood and we've gone right back before that to the main plan of God and the main plan of God is that in you Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed all the families of the earth will be blessed so it's not confined to the Jews alone but it's to everyone that's why I'm getting excited in this pulpit tonight because now I am included in this ministry Christ is my high priest Christ is my king of righteousness Christ is my king of peace Christ is my salvation he's my sanctification he's my wisdom from God he's my saviour and he intercedes for me that's Jesus not just for a certain group of people in the Middle East who can trace their lineage back to Abraham physically no it's for me it's for the whosoever the salvation is for the whosoever he is universal and not restricted to the Jews you know what of course I'm getting excited because I'm a Gentile because I would have been left out if Jesus was a Levitical priest but you see the Jews also ought to be thrilled with what I'm talking about tonight you know if, if a, a bunch of Jews came in here tonight and, think, and they, if they thought oh he's, he's rubbish in our, our religion no I'm not no I'm not because let me tell you there is no salvation in Jewish religion none whatsoever salvation is only found in Christ you know, and therefore the Jews also ought to be thrilled because of this in Hebrews chapter 8 it says this uh, in that he says a new covenant he has made the first one obsolete now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away you know what I would say that uh, this is the whole premise of the book of, uh, of Hebrews you know the story of the book of Hebrews how these Christians were filtering back to the Jewish way of life filtering back to the Hebrew uh, way of life and they were thinking about going back to the sacrifices and going back to the temple you know and here is the, the writer to the Hebrews he is showing us who Jesus is He's the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He's the one who ever lives to um, intercede for you and for me. But they are missing out because they want to go back. So what he's saying is, look, because Christ has come and because Christ has taken Melchizedek's priesthood and not Aaron's, then Aaron's has become obsolete obsolete you know we know that not long after the book of Hebrews is written the Romans came to Jerusalem and completely destroyed the temple of the Lord they burned it to the ground they sacked Jerusalem and burnt the temple to the ground 
You know, and that's, uh, that's all the, the writer to the Hebrews was saying. Listen to what he says again. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And the Jewish religion vanished in AD 70. When the temple was destroyed and the priesthood became obsolete and failed or ceased to function. But listen to what it says about Jesus. But he, because he continues forever as an unchangeable priesthood, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them unchangeable priesthood that's Jesus the other one is obsolete it's of no value whatsoever yes we can learn a lot from the Levitical priesthood and you know what, I've got to be honest, when I was uh, growing up in the faith, the tabernacle, I loved studying the tabernacle. I loved studying the priesthood and all the garments uh, that he has. And all the utensils and the, the, the altar and the, the lampstand and all that. It was absolutely fabulous. Because when you study that, it all points to Christ. It all points to Jesus. In other words, what it's doing is pointing away from itself to Jesus. Because you see, I'm not interested in the tabernacle now. I'm not interested in the lampstand now. I'm not interested in the altar of incense now. I'm not interested in the Ark of the Covenant now. Because I've got Jesus. And He's all those things to me. All I need is Jesus. No, it's important for us to understand that because now he saves me to the uttermost and he always lives to make intercession for me. Now me and David went to Israel in 1918 and the, the person, uh, the pastor who was spiritually sort of explaining things to us when we went round, he told us, he said, do you know, he said, that they are, um, what's the word I'm looking for now? They are a breeding or trying to breed a red heifer. Now, since then, I was 40 years ago, dear. 40 years ago, me and you went as well. I can't believe that. 40 years ago. Now, now, of course, they are training priests in, in Israel, they've got the animals. No, they succeeded in getting red heifers and, and all the other stuff. Now there's plans to build the third temple. Oh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. No one, they're trying to resurrect the Levitical priesthood. But as much as I love the Jews, and as much as I want to see them prosper, and as much as I know that they will be there when Christ comes, their temple... And their Levitical priesthood and their specific animals are of no value whatsoever to me because they were only meant as a temporary measure. Yeah. 
and is always superseded with Christ's everlasting priesthood. And His blood speaks forever and forever. And there will never be a time in the whole of eternity when it won't be the blood of Christ that will have cleansed us from all unrighteousness. The blood of the lambs and the goats and the bulls cannot take away sin. They are useless and impotent in the taking away of sin. But the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You know what, I don't care how many temples are built in Jerusalem, how many priests are trained, how many red ephors are reared. They are obsolete. God is finished with all that. Because now Jesus stands in the center of history, the center stage. And it's His blood that cleanses us from all our sins. And now He ever lives to make intercession for us as well as the Jews. I was going to look at Zechariah 3a as well tonight. Uh, but I think I've said enough. I've said enough. You know, in Zechariah chapter 3 is another wonderful prophecy of what will took place at the first coming of Christ. You know, and so we'll keep that for next week. And then the week after we'll probably Lord, we'll try and look at the second coming of Christ. And see what Zachariah has got to say about that. But just for tonight, just for tonight, let's remember that he is our eternal high priest. He's the king, or he's the priest who sits on the throne. He's not doing it under false pretenses because it's not the Levitical priesthood that we are concerned about. That's gone. We are talking about his eternal Melchizedekian priesthood. And it's so much sweeter because it works for you and for me. Paul says, this is the mystery. That it was withheld from them. Yes, the, the, the prophecies were there, but no one knew what they meant. What, did it, what do you mean, uh, Zechariah, that, the, that the, the branch is going to be the king and the priest? How can that be? And here is Paul saying, because now it's re- revealed to us from in the New Testament that you and I yeah. are going to share fellowship with the Jews in this eternal realm. You know, and this, the thing about it as well is that the Jews themselves can only come through the blood of Christ. Levi has no power for them. It's the blood of Christ. And every person who will walk the streets of heaven will walk because of Jesus. None of them will walk because of Levi. They will all walk because of Jesus. And you and I are destined to walk the streets of glory because Christ has shed His blood for us and ever lives to make intercession for us. For His name's sake. Amen.